this morning, I'm, uh, I'm going to go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, again, boy, I apologize for not having those, those uh, notes for you today, but uh, well, uh, there you have it. <laughs> I just, I just for, you know, I had one of those nights where you don't sleep at all, you know, the one where you think the alarm's going to go off in a second and you can't sleep. Anybody ever have those? Anybody have those with one last night too? Yeah, uh, that's me. So if I start talking about the NCAA basketball tournament in the middle of this, you'll know why. So uh, that's how, how we go. But listen, you know, I figure if Cliff can, uh, if Cliff can teach on a on Acts for a year and a half in here, you know, and how long has he been in John 10? How long has he been in there? Long time, right? I figure I can do three or four lessons out of Ephesians chapter 6, right? That's only fair, isn't it? So, uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've actually taught on this passage. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but uh, it's kind of like I'm stalking Paul just a little bit. It's, it's getting a little freaky to me. I, uh, I actually give Cliff kind of a hard time when he, when he uh, does spend a a lot of time in these passages. I think we all do kind of give him some grief about it. But you know what? I, I think I'm beginning to understand a little bit about why he does this. Um, I used to think he was just nuts, and maybe he is. But uh, I'll tell you one thing for sure about Cliff Sanders, that he has taught me and shown me a lot about the Bible. I think we can all agree on that, can't we? He is a, he's a great talent. Um, here's, here's what I start. I started thinking about. Why has Cliff spent so much time in, in these topics, in these passages? Because um, I was, you know, he, he's kind of become my mentor in, in a manner of speaking, and, and I did notice that he's doing that. And, and I don't think it's so much, and, and I don't want to speak for Cliff, I'm just telling you my perspective on this. I don't think it's so much that Cliff has information that he wants to give us about that passage as it is perhaps that the more he studies on a passage, the more that passage gives to him. And for me, that is an awesome lesson and example. I need that in my life. Um, uh, and the more I spend time in this Ephesians chapter 6, this passage that we're going to look at again today, um, I think I understand that a little bit better. Uh, you just can't help it when, when a passage keeps giving to you. You know, you, you got to keep going back to it. I, I, uh, I think it's kind of like, why would you leave a passage if it's continued. So maybe that's why Cliff keeps going through these things he's going to. He studies. I know he studies this stuff. We all know he does that. And it keeps giving it to him. You know, leaving a passage before it stops giving is kind of like going to Chilino's and saying no to the Sopapilla, right? I mean, who does that, by the way, right? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> you know, if you, have you had the chocolate one yet? Because that thing is the bomb, right? I could, I could have, you know, bean dip coming out my ears and nose, and they could come up to me and say, do you want that soap of pee? And I'm like, yeah, all right? Because <laughs> my wife the other day said no to it. And I looked at her like she was an alien, right? The meal is still giving to you. Why would you want to walk away from that, right? The soap of pee is the way to go. And I kind of think that's a little bit how these passages are. And I think that's a little bit about what Cliff's doing. I mean, maybe he's kind of seeking the soap of pee in the scripture, if you will. Uh, I don't know. I told you I didn't sleep last night, right? I'd say that, right? Okay. Maybe, maybe, I want to talk just a second about this because maybe there is this paradigm of Bible study that needs to shift. I know it does in me. Um, it kind of occurred to me when I was thinking about why Cliff spends this time in these passages. Because I was thinking about why do I keep going back to Ephesians chapter 6. I am truly drawn to this passage because it, it in fact, does act like the Sopapia. It does absolutely keep giving to me. I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. But I wonder, as, as Cliff and I are kind of working on this project together of, of the Bible study tools, I kind of, the, the questions kind of came to my mind. If I study a passage of Scripture, 
in just one single sitting, have I really found everything that I need in that passage? Maybe that's not the way to ask it. Maybe a better way to say that is, do I give the words of a passage the time to minister to me the way that maybe passages are ministering to Cliff and that he gives back on to us? That's what I was kind of contemplating. Um, Look at this passage. Here's where I think about this. Cliff shared this verse with us about six, eight months ago. And and I've been thinking about it ever since, all right? But this kind of is illustrative of Bible study, I think, all right? Because there is a relationship, I think, that is established in Bible study. So the first verse says here, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Okay, so in, when, when I look at this passage, I'm going I'm to pull this back into Bible study for a second. In, in verse 44, what is the treasure? The kingdom of heaven, right? kingdom of heaven is the treasure. Who is the man? It's us, right? We're the man. So in this particular instance, we're seeking God in Bible study, to use my example here, okay? But look in verse 45, and this is why I love this passage so much, okay? Oh, you're supposed to know these things, people. Come on, keep up, all right? It's, we're in Matthew chapter 13. Yeah, come on. Did I tell you I didn't sleep last night? Because I put this particular slide up last night, all right? So... All right, sorry about that. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45, sorry. I sure hope it's Matthew 13 now that I said that. All right, okay, good. All right, so we're reading again. And what we're looking at on the kingdom, the reason I put these slides up is that the kingdom is like a treasure, okay? And in this particular part of the parable that Jesus uses, we're seeking the kingdom. See, but the relationship changes in the next parable in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. So in this case, who is the merchant? The merchant is the kingdom. The kingdom is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Who's the pearl? We are. That's something I had, had not paid a lot of attention to in this. So see how that relationship is established kind of in, in Bible study here? Using this as an example. In the first parable, we seek the kingdom of heaven. But also, the kingdom of heaven is seeking each and every one of us. And that's the relationship. To me, that right there is the essence of Bible study. And it's why when I'm pulled into Ephesians chapter 6 so many times, it's because I'm seeking God, right, in this passage. When I take the time to to focus, and I don't do it enough, don't get me wrong, but when I do it, God turns around and treats me like that pearl and unfolds these little tidbits of information to me that are so important. I just think it's fascinating. Um, here's, here's another example real quick. Uh, in, uh, and, and I use this and I quote this passage a lot. In uh, Proverbs chapter 2. How about that? I told you this time. Wasn't that good? All right. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you. And I've got this rock, a Norman Rockwell painting up there. Okay. That's just kind of how I visualize it. You know, Solomon speaking to his sons. But my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, you make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry out for discernment and call aloud for understanding, or lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver 
and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. And what? Let's discover the knowledge of God. Is there any wonder? I go back to that question. If I just sit down there and look at a Bible passage and I read it, and then I turn around and say what I think it means. Have, what is going on there? Have I really, okay, there we go. Have I really given the, the, the passage enough time to minister to me? Um, and, and that's why I'm in my own Bible study, I'm trying to really slow down. I'm really, listen, if I, if I study um, three or four words or, or a verse or even one chapter over a long period of time, I, I seem to be getting more from the passage and it, and it really seems to be speaking to me and that parable about me seeking God and God seeking me seems to play out a little bit better. I just wanted to share that just a little bit. Uh, so every time that, that I'm kind of teaching now, um, whenever I get up here, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the Bible study tool that Cliff and I are kind of putting together. It's just, I, I'm, I'm so attracted to this and I'm having so much fun with it and I just want to share a little bit about it. Um, and there's, what I want to share with you today is just a little bit about how to begin because I realized that um, I haven't really spent a lot of time. We've, we talked a little bit in the past uh, when I taught on Matthew chapter 11. We talked a little bit about uh, mood. Remember we talked about the declarative and imperative statements and how you can use that in a passage to really find what you're looking for. But really taking the time in a passage to read a passage and talking about that just quickly. And it, it almost sounds like something that doesn't have to be said, but yet I, I find that that in the class, when I teach this on Monday nights, this is one of the things that I really need to, that I go into a lot. Let me say it that way. All right? When, when I'm reading a passage, let's, let, let me illustrate it this way. Normally, when I, when I was reading, reading a passage, I would look at it and read it. And like I said, then I would say what I thought it meant. And I would I'd read it like one time. How many have done that? Okay? How many do this with Bible study? You pick up in the Bible, you open a point, and read it and try to gather something from it, right? How effective is that? How bored do you get, right? confused and you're like all right so what i think is maybe making this comment about bible study in the very first thing this is the easiest thing that you can do keep reading a passage until you find something i don't care if it's the word it or the or whatever because what i've noticed on these monday night classes that that i teach is that one word will jump out of that passage at you okay read it until that happens and and I, it's different every time to me, and it's different for every person when we do this. We're going to try it just a little bit. But then what you do, this is the thing that, that Cliff and I kind of came up with. Actually, Cliff came up with this part. It's really cool. Find the four to five things in a passage, okay, that are, you feel, not what somebody else feels. Don't use commentary at this point in time, but the four to five things that you feel are important for you understanding that passage. The danger is, is to try to find everything on every word. And let me tell you, that'll run you down a rabbit hole. I've done that, okay? But if you'll slow down and read and find, read until you find something and then observe and look for the four to five things that you think are going to be important to understanding the passage, I think you'll see that this thing will start to unfold. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. My favorite thing to do with Cliff is, you know, the, if you're not using Blue Letter Bible on your phones or whatever you got here or BibleHub.com, how many of you have those? 
Any of the blue? Yeah, some of them have out there. My favorite thing to do with Cliff when he says a word that he's going to define in the Greek is get my phone out and show him that I already know what it is because I found it. That drives him crazy. He always gives me the look when I do that. But Blue Letter Bible is a great way to do that, by the way, because you can you literally touch the word in, in the, on the phone, and it'll show you what the meaning of it is. And listen, I don't try to be a Greek scholar. I, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a Bible student, so I, I kind of keep that in perspective. I'm not trying to write my own translation of the Bible or anything like that, but I agree with you totally. Trying to find these words and getting, getting the meaning of it is good. But listen, trying to find those four to five things in a passage that will really help you to understand this thing. Let, let's just try a couple of these. Um, I, I randomly picked these, these verses. I, I, I got on the, uh, on the internet by design. I said popular verses. And I just threw some of them up because I didn't want you to think that I looked at these up in advance. Okay? So when, I, when you read this, I'll read these a couple of times. And what I want you to do... Just, just throw them out there. What is the one word or something in this passage that really captures your attention? Or what are the thing, the you know, couple of things that you see you think are going to be important for you to understand this passage? So let me read it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Let's read it one more time. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, Plans to give you a hope and a future. Somebody throw out what, one of the words out there that, that captures your attention. Plans. That's good, isn't it? What are the plans? All right? Huh? No. Yeah. Yeah. So, no. Oh, no. He wasn't saying no to plans. <laughs> K-N-O-W. All right, good, good. I love how this stuff works. All right? So that's great. All right? I know the plans. Yeah, and, and what Cliff and I are kind of learning, this is the, the, the really cool little tidbit here. These things that we find, these four to five things, or the one thing that you see that really captures your attention, are broken into two things. They'll either be grammatical or historical in nature. And once you recognize that, you can really go and find the tools and, and, and understand this better. And it makes Bible study not as daunting as it may seem. Because sometimes for me, in the past, when I open the Bible and just try to, you know, what is God saying to me and, you know, Nehemiah, whatever, you know, or, or Leviticus or whatever, what is he saying to me in that? And then, you know, just randomly doing that, I, I, I just, I get lost, right? And, and unattentive to it because I, I just don't get anything out of it, right? So I know the plans. So it was interesting to me, Doug saw the word no. Who saw the word? You saw the word plans. Anybody else see anything? I. Yeah, it's great. I love how you're seeing this. That's the really cool thing about Monday nights to me is we kind of slow down in this, and, uh, and th that's not a shameless plug for money. I'll give you the shameless plug. Cliff and I are going to teach this class on Wednesday night coming up in April, okay? So there you go. There's the shameless plug. But listen, what's cool about Monday nights is how we see this develop in each person based on their own personal files of life. So the word, uh, the word hope is the one that captures my attention here. That's the word that got my attention. When I read it, every time I read it this, you know, this morning... <laughs> We'll go into that later. All right. Uh, it, was a, uh, it was the word hope that just kind of leapt off the page at me. All right. So those are grammatical features. Let's try it one more time. Okay. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Read it one more time. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Word faith came out really quick. I mean, so that caught your attention, right? What else? hope, right? And again, I just randomly picked these verses. I literally copied and pasted them right onto my uh, PowerPoint. Somebody said hope. Somebody said faith. Certain. Certain. Okay. Very good. We're going to do this again. There's a point to why I'm doing this. Okay. So, um, certain, that's a good one. All right. So do you see, 
let's look at that the word certain would that be a historical feature or a grammatical feature that you need to look up grammatical okay so you've got all these resources that are grammatically oriented things like mood and tense and and definitions and all these things and you again the point is exactly what the gentleman in the back was saying it just gives you more flavor for the verse you're seeking god god is seeking you by unfolding these verses to you okay uh one more and then we'll move on okay no temptation has seized you what is it, uh, except what is common to man and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up kind of got to read it more than once because when you do it the first time it, you see what i'm saying you got to and again you got to read it more than twice really okay i i spend a lot of time just reading it and re over and over again and a, a pattern will start forming in my head all right so let's read it one more time no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up what caught your attention provide okay faithful it's another good word okay <clears throat> seized that one yeah that one's an interesting one right all right so where is that oh no temptation has seized you yeah that might be a little bit historical and grammatical if you think about it okay i'd want to know a little, little bit about that okay but uh there that's the cool part about this so you see how that kind of works just when you read a passage my encouragement to you slow down okay that's that's the one thing that i've had to learn i i don't it's not a race all right it's not a race to see who reads the bible the fastest or the most times all right, a little bit different there. Okay, so let's move on a little bit. Uh, just as a, uh, as a quick re uh, application here. You know, Cliff does those really well. Those what-if comments he always did, I've, I've learned that from him. All right, so what if this week I picked up the Bible and read a single passage for the entire week? What if I read that passage until I found something in it? What if I found those four to five things and started looking at the grammatical and historical ramifications of them? And then maybe what if, this is just the beginning stages of what we do in, in the Bible state, but what if I documented that? Because that's the really cool part about that. One of the things that we do that I really love about this Bible study tool is we encourage people when you pray in the beginning, it's the very first step. I mean, it almost goes without saying, but listen, when you write down your prayers before you do Bible study, the thing that has been so impactful to me is to go back to that six or seven months later and to read that prayer that is fascinating to see what God does with that. Listen, that's when those verses in Matthew chapter 13 start to play out. Yeah, I've sought him. But then I really get to see how God is, has, has sought me or, or seeks me in his way of saying that. So anyway, just a quick application on that. So thank you for being here today. That's the lesson, all right? No, actually, I'm just getting started. All right, so hey, just follow my buddy Cliff, right? That's all right. All right, so let's read. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're actually only going to focus on eight words today, and it's going to be a long time before I get to them because I'm going to set it back up, right? But let's read it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Take up, oops, lost my place. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to uh, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Okay, 
Last time I taught on this subject, I, I started in verse 10 and I kind of worked my way down to girding your loins with truth, okay? This time we're going to take the next phrase in that. Uh, but before I do that, all right, uh, we're gonna, I want to I wanna show you, just give you a quick example, and it, and it just occurred is why I wanted, wanted, wanted to share this, um, of how a passage, how, how this passage specifically keeps on giving to me. Um, remember, I've studied this passage in Ephesians. I think the first time I taught in this was probably 2000 and, let's see, we started going to church here in 2007, 8, 8 it was. And so probably into 2008, early 2009 was the first time I taught on this, uh, this passage in this class. And I've probably taught, this is probably my third, maybe fourth time, okay, that I've taught on this passage. And so I've, I know this passage, quote unquote, know this passage. I've been through it a lot. But in reading and preparing this time, I caught something again I'd never, ever noticed. Isn't that cool about the Bible? I, I, I don't know any other document that I've ever read, certainly not a math book. Okay, I don't know why I thought that. It just came to my head. All right, uh, just being clear. All right, so uh, in reading this, this is what I found, okay? It's in verse 10 and verse 11. Um, one, one little point, too. I don't want to present these like every time I see one of these little golden nuggets in the Bible that they're absolutely 100% life-changing, okay? They don't have to be. For me, it's part of the process. It's part of the process of how God molds me through his word. And, and, I've, and boy, I say that with all humility. Please, this is something I'm learning, definitely not something I've learned, okay? But when I read this, um, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Notice what this says. Here's what I, I never noticed before. In verse 10, it states, finally be strong in what? In the Lord. Flip over to, flip to verse 11. Now what does verse, uh, put on the full armor of God. I have never noticed the difference between those two. In verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor, however, of God. Now, I've kind of learned over the years, and I'm not going to go into great detail of this right now, of the play between the difference between the word Lord and the word God. Uh, when I think of the word Lord, I personally have come to understand that as relationship. Okay? When I, when I, when I uh, think of the word God, and this is true Old Testament, New Testament, the, the themes seem to even though they're different languages, different times, different people, that kind of thing. It just seems to kind of, that little golden thread seems to stay true to those two words for me. When I think of the word God, I think of power and position whenever I see those two words. So uh, in verse one, uh, number one, it doesn't ring of a lot of personal achievement in here when I read this. Be strong in the Lord. I, I am not strong because of myself. That kind of goes without saying. But rather because of my relationship with the Lord. That's why that word Lord and the difference between those two kind of leapt off the page at me. And there's lots of examples of this um, throughout the Bible. Gideon is my favorite one. That's the other person in the Bible I've been stalking for a long time, right? Uh, the angel of the Lord comes again. I'm just going to quickly review this because I know you know this story, but the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, my favorite verse in the Bible, I'll probably say it every time I'm up here, okay? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Man, I can't think. Every time I say that, I just get, I don't know, there's just something about that verse for me personally. It just, it gets me. But Gideon, however, has a hard time believing this, doesn't he? All right? And he asks the question, how can I possibly accomplish the things that I have to accomplish? All right? 
And he's told these beautiful words right here. And boy, is this a summary, okay? Go in the strength that you have. What strength does Gideon have at that point in time in the relationship of Israel? Nothing. Not a thing. I mean, if you look at that story and where Israel is, I mean, Gideon's hiding in a wine press. He's threshing wheat. I mean, he, they, anything they try to do is completely torn apart by their enemy, all right? Um, he has, know this for sure about this part of the story, he has zero strength on his own. He has no hope. Um, the relationship of the Lord, this is what catches my attention, and this is why I bring it into this story. The relationship of the Lord is his only strength. I love that word, the Lord. And I believe Paul is illustrating the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. My relationship with the Lord, my relationship with the Lord is what makes me strong. It's the only thing. I have no, just like Gideon, I have no hope. I've learned that through experience, that my strength is because of my relationship, because of that word, Lord. Okay, now let me give you a, a goofy example and then a better example, okay? Um, when I grew up, uh, my, about my relationship and strength, we'll use this example. When I graduated high school, I was five foot five and weighed 110 pounds, okay? I was a mammoth of a dude, let me tell you, okay? <laughs> five, five, 110 pounds. The only problem was I had a six foot eight, 280 pound mouth, okay? I really did. Some of y'all probably don't find that shocking at all. I know my daughter's going, really? <laughs> so, all right, so, and, uh, you know, I, you know, not that I was, you know, verbally abusive or anything, but if you mouthed off to me, I could pretty much put it right back in your face. That's the way I was. Again, you don't stay beautiful like I am today at five foot five, 110 pounds when you got that kind of mouth, right? But I had buddies, okay? I had a good friend named Jay Parks, right? And when people would come up to that, Jay was a, a soft-spoken guy, right? And he would lift his arm, and when people would look at me like, we're going to rearrange this guy's body parts, he would go up like this and go, think about it, guys. And guess what? They would, they would think about it, right? That's how they worked with it, all right? And so, he was a big guy, still is. They still use his, the video of him at Edmond High School on how to tackle in football games. That was back in 82 when we were in high school, all right? So I was strong because of my, the relationship I had with Jay, not any other reason. I had no strength on my own. Terrible example. Here's a better one, all right? I just thought about that this morning. I thought, you know, that's kind of like me and Jay. So, uh, but you remember this story? Who is that? That's the, the Hoyts, right? And the reason I put this up, I was going to show some of the video, but, you know, every time I've, I've seen this, this uh, presentation on, on these two guys, and they're, they are just a fabulous story. Every time I've seen it, it's about the love. It's a story of love, isn't it, right? But while I was thinking about I'm made strong in my relationship with the Lord, I started thinking about how the word relationship, how, how this is making this man, this young man in, in this wheelchair in front of them. Think about how strong he's made because of his relationship with his father. These guys have won marathons, triathlons, everything. We've all seen the videos, right? Can anybody still watch this without crying? I mean, if you are, you're, you're better than I am. I can't do it, right? The relationship is what makes that young man strong. I just, I just think that's powerful to me. And this falls in line with what Cliff's been teaching us um, for a long time. There's a, there's a phrase he uses a lot, and, and it just captures me. He says this, God's capacity is best shown in what? Our inadequacy, right? Uh, the strength of relationship with our Lord is what makes us strong. All right, so Paul switches from 
be strong in the Lord to put on the full armor of God. And when I see the word God, I think of, I think of, uh, uh, I think of that word power and position. So here's what I come with this. The one I have relationship has the power and position to overcome any situation that I'm facing. Um, and I, I'm going to give you just a quick illustration. I, when, when Paul writes, um, put on the full armor of God, there's a visual that kind of pops in my head. And I kind of I see Paul, and, and I have to close my eyes when I do this, but I can kind of see him. I don't know if he's writing it. I don't know where he's at. I know he's in Rome and maybe in a prison, uh, but he's b- being held. I know that much, all right? And he's writing these words, and he's writing about uh, of God. And I kind of think, I wonder if he's thinking back there a little bit of when, when he was Saul, you know? He said, putting on the full armor. I almost see him almost pause when he writes that. He says, put on the full armor of God. Because, you know, when he was Saul, maybe he was, had on the full armor of Saul, so to speak, right? Or maybe the Jewish people. And, and, and I kind of wonder if he just didn't pause on that. I don't know why. That, that just, that's one of those little bitty phrases that doesn't change your life so, so much. It maybe just gives you a little bit more perspective about what Paul may be doing this. All right, before I move into verse 14, we still haven't got to the lesson yet, okay? Um, see, I've learned so well from Cliff. All right, so uh, I want to reestablish verse 12 because I think this is the key. If you read the book of Ephesians, you will notice that the word walk is used primarily in chapters 1 through 5. But in Ephesians chapter 6, suddenly we are called to stand. Why is it? Why are we called to stand in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12? I think I misspoke that a second ago. I believe it's because of this verse 12 right here. Because Paul is describing our enemy. See, I don't think I put, nope, or did I? Nope, okay. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, this is Paul describing our enemy, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. I want to make a correlation real quick, go back to Gideon for just a second, all right? I want to make a correlation between the enemy of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and the enemy of Judges chapter 6. Let's first, let's look at the enemy of, of, of uh, Gideon, okay? For, and this is in Ephesians chapter 6, and, uh, and it's, right, it's kind of in the verse 4 is in there, 3, something in that, in that range, if you're, looking at, if you're looking in your own Bibles. So start in the beginning. And basically, Israel is trying to, to exist, and it's just not happening for them because they're being overrun by an enemy. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come, down, would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them, okay? And then I'll skip down here. The other part says, they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. I think one of the other versions says that you could no more count the, the, uh, their camels and men than you could count the sands on the seashore. Remember, I think that may be later in the verse or passage or something like that. That's the enemy that, uh, that Gideon is facing. It's a big army, right? What does is, what is Gideon's army look like? 300 people, right? And what was the plan? What was the plan of attack against this massive army that, that, uh, that Gideon and his 300 men are going up? Huh? Surprise, yeah. It's kind of like, in, in a manner of speaking, when I kind of read it, it's kind of like we're going to sneak up with some flashlights and some megaphones, okay? That's, 
if you kind of read it, I kind of see it that way, all right? It, 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 in human terms alone, that plan doesn't make a lot of sense, right? You got 300 men against this massive army that could be no more counted than the sand on the seashore. You're going to sneak up in the middle of the night. You're going to break a torch and yell a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. I mean, those guys are going, can, can we discuss the plan just for five minutes real quick? Can, can we get five here? Right? Can I get a hot tub? Yeah, so uh, the, uh, somebody caught that. All right, that's good. All right. Um, I don't even know where it came from. All right, so uh, in, Gideon and his 300 men basically have no chance in this battle, do they? On the, in human terms, okay? Without God, you don't fight this battle. If you're an army general and you're looking at this battle and you, with your 300 men, you consider the consequences and what do you do? You surrender, don't you? Because you have no business fighting this battle. And you can probably imagine where I'm kind of going with this a little bit. I'm changing back to Ephesians chapter 6 in comparison to this army. If you look at the army according to Paul, let, let's kind of compare them. The army, let, me, let me make this point. The, the army that Gideon faced uh, pales in comparison to the army we face, doesn't it? I might point out that our army is 300 times smaller than Gideon's army, right? If we're facing this on our own is what I mean by that. And look at the battle plan we're given. It's a little odd if you think about it. Stand firm. Paul says, did that move again? Uh, Paul, Paul says, every other place it's about action and walking. But here in Ephesians, when Paul is describing the enemy that we are facing, the call is to stand firm. Get dressed for the battle. That's what we're going to look at next, all right? But stand firm. How can, I, how can I stand against an army that exists in realms that I don't even understand? I have no business fighting this battle alone, but Gideon was told that the Lord was with him, all right? We use the words of Paul, don't we? Be strong in the Lord. There's that word Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I can tell you that there are many times in my life that I have fought my own battles. And don't hear me turn me down or us down or anything like that. I, don't, I try not to, to present like that. There are times that we do it right. But the times in my life when I, when I kind of face this life on my own and when I forget to include God and when I, when I don't spend the time seeking him and he, where, and he seeks me kind of thing, that's when I make my big mistakes in my life. I don't know about you, but that's when I do it. Um, I'll give you, you know, that's when that big old massive army that, that is um, illustrated in Ephesians chapter 6 just has a tendency to walk right over the top of me. It's, it's no mystery, all right? Matt, Matt challenged us this year for, to have that word for the year. Anybody, anybody get their word put together? Mine is the word time. And I put it together before I even asked that because I was thinking about this. Because I'll tell you, in the last half of 2014, I had a hard time making time for God in my life. And, and I, saw, I saw me accepting things in my life I wouldn't normally accept. And, I, and I, I, there's just something different about my life when I do take the time to pray and, and, and ask God into my mornings. Man, one of my favorite things to do in the morning when I remember is to wake up and say, good morning, Lord. Man, will you please enter my life today and invite him into that? And uh, I want to limit those times uh, in my life that I'm not focused on the Lord. And the way I kind of think I do that is the second half of this passage. We're almost to the point of the lesson, okay? Isn't that good? All right, so don't worry. We're going to go quickly. It's only eight words. All right, so the last time uh, I spoke on this passage, we built to this point, and we plowed into the phrase, girding your loins with truth. Uh, every time I see that, I still think of barbecue sauce and a grill, okay? How do you gird your loins, all right? I, 
baste them in barbecue. Right, thank you. Thank you for laughing at that totally weird joke. All right. Uh, actually, it's, it's preparing yourself with truth, which again is another reference to Bible study to me. It's, there's more to it than that. I'm not going to go back into that lesson. But, but today, for the rest of our time, for the next few minutes, what time is class over? Are we over 10, 15? Okay, I got about five minutes, right? Five, ten. All right, good. Just go with me on that. All right. Uh, the eight words, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The reason I, I had you do that exercise in the beginning is, let's look at these words, and let's see if I can put the passage back up here. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I want to prove to you that you, even with eight words, you can, you, if you slow down, you can find a lot of stuff. Okay, and this one definitely did that. Of those eight words, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, what grabs your attention? What one thing grabs your attention? Righteousness. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? All right. Somebody else? Put on. That's a good one. I like the put on. We'll get to that in a second. All right, what else? There's only eight words, right? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll cut you some slack. Huh? Yes, very good point. What she said was that these are action words that she sees when she's, and they're things that she has to do to keep doing over and over multiple times in order for, for these words to be applicable in, in her life. I, I totally agree with that comment. Here, here's what I noticed, first of all, okay? And again, I just slowed down, started looking at the words, and started kind of look at the play between the words, right? The first word I noticed is the word having. Um, it involves the grammatical tool of tense, what tense is the word having? Past, present, or future? Pa having put on. It's past tense, yeah. All right? So, sorry, I didn't make that clear. There are actually three items of armor that are involved with past tense. There is having girded your loins. Then there's having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the gospel of peace. All right? It kind of makes sense. There's some things you got to do. Did I say something wrong? Everybody's giggling out there. I think I may have said the wrong thing. If I did, sorry. Okay. Uh, if it, does, it makes sense, though. There's things in this battle, okay, that I, there's things that I do, rather, before the battle. The breastplate of righteousness, ironically, is something I do before the battle. It's also the one part of the armor that is put on. The other things, okay, um, the other things are put on either in, in present tense or future tense. Like it says, you take up the helmet of salvation. Hear how that's present and future tense? You take up the sword of the spirit, but the breastplate is already on. And I'm not trying to get too literal here. Don't get me wrong, because you, you can definitely go down some rabbit holes with this. You try to find everything on every word. But I thought Paul was being kind of adamant because he, when he writes, he didn't say, having put on, uh, having girded your loins with truth and breastplate of righteousness and shod your feet, he says, having uh, girded your loins. And then he uses again, he's emphatic, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and then having put on. So I kind of think he's been being a little bit uh, impactful there. Let's look at the other words, the word breastplate, okay? This is a good example of a word that could use some historical research. I think I did put a picture on it up here. And, you know, you can, I didn't spend a lot of time here because this is not not the one that really caught my attention. Uh, but, you know, the breastplate is something, I always thought it was just about the heart, but, you know, when we really think about it, it starts at the bottom of the neck and goes down to your hips kind of thing, right? So it's covering all of the vital organs. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep going because we are going to run out of time. I looked at righteousness, okay? And I love the definition of this word in the Blue Letter Bible. It's, it says, in a broad sense, the state of him who is, who is as he ought to be. Righteousness, the condition that is acceptable to heart, to, to God, rather. Righteousness is the place I belong. That's what I learned when I read that. It's the state that is intended for me. Isn't it comforting to know that God's intention for us is righteousness, even though we can't put it on ourselves, right? Righteousness is not something I can put on myself. I merely choose and accept it, and it's put on me. When I choose to accept and put on the breastplate of righteousness in Jesus Christ, I'm physically transformed into a being that is acceptable to God. I love that about the breastplate. Is there any better news than that? That when we accept the breastplate of righteousness, when we accept Jesus Christ, we're transformed into something we can't be on our own. It makes much more sense to me then that when I'm clothed with the breastplate of righteousness, I don't need to do anything else but stand firm. Standing firm, I'm clothed, I'm transformed. No weapon against me shall prevail, right? Isn't that what the, the uh, actually prospers the word? I stand firm. But here's the last part. Here's the last part of this, okay? I got one minute. I think I'll get through it, okay? It's the words put on. Didn't that, didn't that catch you? The word, whoever said that over there, the word put on. This is the thing that caught my attention. Um, the definition is to be clothed or to clothe or be clothed in the sense of sinking into a garment, okay? And I think it's pretty obvious to when we consider righteousness that we're being clothed and that we're not clothing ourselves. I think we understand that. But it was the part of that definition of sinking into the garment that, that kind of caught my attention. And I couldn't really find anything on it. I, it took me a long time um, because there wasn't a lot of research about what that actually meant. And so I used a different tool in Bible study called word study where you kind of look at different passages to see how the same word is being used. And what I learned is that this word put on is the same word that Jesus uses when he describes the, the, the prodigal son in uh, Matthew chapter, no, Luke chapter 11. Sorry, I didn't write that down on my notes. And when I consider that parable, the phrase sinking, of the, sinking into the garment of righteousness started to make sense to me. Uh, I have this visual of the prodigal son left the place that he belonged, right? And he ventured out on his own. I'm going to read this because it'll let me go a little quicker because we're running out of time. He left his own cause. The enemy runs over him, just like the enemy runs over me when I'm left to my own uh, controls. And he's devastated to a point that he's actually uh, eating with pigs. All right? Now, I realize this is a parable. It's a story. The event didn't happen, okay? But there's still this visual that comes to my mind. And according to the parable, Jesus states that the son's only hope was it to find a way to exist by going home and becoming a servant, an employee of his father. And we all know the story. The son is still a long ways out, and the father sees him and runs to him. And it sounds kind of like the kingdom parable kind of thing, where he seeks the kingdom and the kingdom seeks him thing. And the son says, I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I just work for you? And the father says, has nothing to do with that. And what does he say? He says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. This is the exact same word that's used when we put on the, the, the breastplate of righteousness. And even though this is a parable, we can all feel the emotion of, of the story of life, all right? And I can imagine what it must feel like to be in that event, to be that son, to not have any hope whatsoever, and to be able to put that robe back on. And for us, the illustration is to be able to put that righteousness on. He, he had fallen so far in the story, 
he had left the beauty of his life. Uh, on his own, he'd given up everything he could be. And he had it in his head that he could not go home. But then the potter, father puts on the best robe. And, and, and I don't know, I just, can't, I just visualize what that, the emotion of what a moment like that must be. To have that moment when you don't think you possibly have any hope whatsoever in your life. And then all of a sudden, this righteousness is put onto us by God. That's what, that's what I visualize in this. I've struggled with application on this phrase of the breastplate of righteousness. I've read many explanations on it. But here's what I kind of came up with. The first step to understanding this breastplate of righteousness is to remember that we're kind of like the prodigal son. To recognize the value of this gift of righteousness that is so freely draped on us. And how, how confident we can feel. I realize I have no business in the battle without putting that on me. Without having that there for it. So I sink into it. And I feel its protection. I literally feel the peace of Christ uh, protecting me. As I face an enemy that is beyond my capacity to fight. And I just stand firm. No wonder it's a piece of armor that we never take off. You may be facing something today. I'm closing very quickly. That you feel is more than you can handle. Those who are facing health issues. With the armor of God. You can stand firm. If you're facing financial issues, if we, you, with the armor of God, we can stand firm. Jesus says to us, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, you can stand. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. But most importantly, Lord, as we come before your throne this morning, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the words that you have given us, Lord. Thank you for this gift, the opportunity that we can take to embrace these words and let them fill our lives and, and affect our lives. Thank you for this breastplate of righteousness that, just is, that you drape over us so freely through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, that gives us a hope to be able to stand firm against this powerful army that is against us, that is set against our destruction, Father. Thank you for this, for each one, each one in this room today. I think and pray that you will go with us and grant us the peace of your day. In Christ's name, amen.